Hey, welcome to the Noob Sparrow Podcast. You're in for a treat today. Evan Leeson, this man flies under the radar. Simon Tripp put me on to him. A big thanks to Simon, as usual, always sending me the good uh, downloads on some of these guests. But um, Evan's, he doesn't really um, talk up his spearing a lot, but as you'll see in this interview, really thinks a lot about different parts of spearfishing. He's a very thoughtful guy, thinks a lot about um, different things, really geeks out on lots of things. I really enjoyed this chat. Um, but he's shot a 40 kilo cobia, dog tooth nearly 80 kilograms. He's shot huge cubera. He's lived in different tropical islands. Um, he sort of spent his childhood growing up in California and Sydney. And a uh, very interesting dude and uh, very well regarded spirit. You're going to enjoy this interview. Um, today's interview is a little bit different. We've got Joe Hayes editing this episode. So big um, thanks to Joe for uh, lending a hand in editing an episode for us. And uh, awesome to have you aboard, buddy. Let's get into this episode. I do not want to hold back. Here we go. Evan Leeson. Way back in 2001, Adreno, or as it was then known, Adrenaline, was a tiny shop on the back streets of Woolloongabba. And at the time, it was nearly impossible to find decent spearfishing equipment, especially at an affordable rate. Since then, hundreds, thousands of people have discovered the joys of spearfishing through Adreno's store. They've gone on and built four stores all across Australia. We've got Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and Perth. And their online shop at spearfishing.com offers a completely different experience than what we're used to finding online in the spearfishing world. If you want free information, you can check out their blog at spearfishing.com or their YouTube channel, shop at spearfishing.com.au. Use the code NoobSpero, you can save $20 on every purchase over $200. And I know lots of noobers have made use of this code over the years. A big thanks to today's sponsor, Adreno. Welcome to the Noob Spare Podcast. Today, you're in for an absolute treat. This guy comes highly recommended, um, albeit with some bias, apparently, Evan was telling me. But uh, welcome to the show, Evan, and uh, last name, Leeson. Yeah, thanks, Isaac. And and you're, you're famous on social media. You're really into that. Um, I don't know who told you that, but um, I've been social media free for a few years now. <laughs> No, I heard that. I heard that. I heard you're these, one of these dudes that flies under the radar, shoots amazing fish and doesn't put it on Instagram. That's unusual in this day and age. I try my best, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I was guilty of it in the past, but I, I, I saw the light. <laughs> Man, I'm still on there, but some days it's a battle. Like I love connecting with people, we're having a good laugh, and I think there's some awesome people in the community. But sometimes just like walls of dead fish on my Instagram, just scrolling and scrolling, and um, you know, I don't know. It, it, there is a, an element of fatigue that sets in. I'll be honest. Is that is that your is that your background with it too? Yeah, uh, I found myself wasting a lot of time on it, and I think the the clincher for me was when I shot a fish, and first thing I thought about was uh, likes and what people were gonna think. And as soon as I realized I started thinking like that, that that was it. I'm I'm done. I mean, what are are we spearfishing? Or are we you know to get someone else's approval? Who has the most fun? And once it goes into that department, I just think. You know, you've, you've lost some of the magic and living in the moment in particular. Just the amount of time you spend scrolling when you could be doing something else. Yeah, I lay in bed this morning for an hour just um, scrolling through um, social media and I just thought afterwards, I just thought, I don't think this is the best way to start the day. But anyway, it's a great way to start an interview. It's awesome to have you on the show. Let's let's talk about your spearing. Um, so you're from, um, you're from England, aren't you? <laughs> I was born in California. Oh, okay. 
Oh, it's a, I thought it was an English accent. So that's good. So California, which part of California? Uh, the Central Coast. Uh, the closest city is uh, San Francisco. So just a few hours drive from there. But I grew up on the beach in a, a small town called Carmel. Okay. But you didn't start sparing until 2008. Yeah. So uh, as, a, as a kid, I wasn't really involved in the ocean at all. Um, went to the beach a lot. I lived near the beach. But yeah, it wasn't until 2008 when I was on a holiday to Australia to see family. I've always split my time between the two countries because my dad's Australian and my mom's American. So with the two passports, I've been, yeah, back and forth. I flight 50, 60 times. Um, so I go multiple times a year. But now my, my cousin took me out diving in 2008. Um, I was never interested in doing. And uh, yeah, it captivated me. And, but then I, I was back in California and I, you know, I went from having someone to go with to I, I knew no one. So it was always back of my mind and I had to start from scratch and try and try and figure it out. But unlike other, you know, hobbies and interests of mine, it was something where I had to wait months and months and months. And normally, especially when you're, you know, early twenties, you know, you, you get really quick, but that was one thing. I was like, I got to do this again. I got to do this again. So every time I talked to someone, they say something about diving, I was straight onto it where, you know, other things that they come and go super quick, but that was one that was a big duck. It's an interesting point you make, like about the the people you dealt with. I think are, are a huge part of it. Um, so obviously you, you you had you got on pretty well with your cousin. There was something exciting, sort of um, the first time or the first few times you went out. What what was it that sort of you remember about those experiences? Uh, well, the yeah, the first time I went, and I think the only reason I went is because I was so pathetically hungover that I didn't. I I, I wasn't thinking straight, um, and like I was looking for any kind of solution. I was, you know, throwing up in the back of my his yard, and uh, I was a mess. And you know, and it was his fault as well because he took me out all night and paid for the drinks, and let me take my cousin out and show him show him how we we party in Sydney. And yeah, my whole life, I've always been afraid of the ocean and, and sharks in particular, you know, like even in a big swimming pool by myself, like I always, you know, have the heebie, like, ooh, what's in here? And, you know. Was that just, was that just from that terrible um, movie experience that we all yeah. had growing up? 100% Steven Spielberg, Jaws, watching at an early age just screwed me up. So anytime in deep water, no matter if it was a lake, the ocean, a pool, like a complete irrational fear. So for him to convince me to go diving was a big deal in itself. And uh, yeah, I was, I was surprised. This is the first time I put on a mask other than when I was a small kid in the, in a swimming pool, you know, and a meter of water with my parents holding on to me. So it was a thing was new about it. And um, yeah, I was, I was instantly comfortable. Uh, also not as hungover. And as soon as started seeing stuff and I was distracting, I, I realized really quickly, I was like, hey, if I can see what's going on, I'm, I'm really comfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I sort of had a similar experience. I think, I think the Jaws has, has, has colored a whole generation of people. Like, like my, uh, I, I remember a lady in her mid-50s and she, and she wouldn't go past their knees because of fears of sharks and stuff. And like I grew up boogie boarding in dirty water off the west coast of New Zealand and like it's kind of the same. You're sitting out there and sometimes you'd be waiting between sets and that's when you start thinking about sharks and stuff. But, but putting a mask on and being on the surface of the water and being able to see everything, that somehow very 
very reassuring. Um, and that was your experience too. Yeah, uh-huh, exactly. And it's always been that way. When I'm even now, after years in the water, I still get a little bit of that that fear. Even when I jump off the the back of the boat with no mask to you know flush my suit, pee, whatever, I'm back in the boat quick. And that's after a whole lot of experience with with sharks um, of all kinds. So it's like, yeah, it's it's still there, and it makes no sense. Like I've done the same. Just dropped off the back of the boat and uh, for for a bit of grog bog, I think. And uh, <laughs> you'd be familiar with grog bog, spending half of your time in Sydney. And it, yeah, that, that is a that is a funny thing you think about. Wouldn't that be the worst way to die in the world, to be eaten by a shark while you, you're taking a dump? Yeah, uh, you know, it's definitely possible. <laughs> um, so okay, so you, you got in the water. You've come to terms with this, at least as far as while you're being distracted and sort of can see everything. Um, what other steps have you made towards rationalising this um, this fear that many of us have? How, how, how do you do it? It's a good question. Uh, I think about it logically, like the the chances of it, and I was reminding myself with the sharks, and I'm sure most people listen to this podcast. Most all it takes is eye contact, and the sharks already, you know, lost interest. So I, I I replay it in my mind, and just you know how ridiculous it is to be afraid of a, a shark in that scenario. I mean, just you jumping off the back of the boat, that big splash, that's going to scare most any shark and fish away for you know a good long while. Sure, they might come look at you, but. I just I replay the logic and the facts, like, and and that's what gives me peace, rather than oh, pretending it's not there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to come to terms with it, eh? I, I think one, one thing I, I had a guy on the podcast a while ago, and he was talking about rationalizing, you know, anxiety for different reasons, and you know, I think in spearfishing, there's so many of these things that can cause you anxiety. And some days, it's very hard to rationalize all of it, like cold water, dirty water. Um, sharks diving out of your comfort zone in terms of depth, um, unfamiliar buddies, new equipment, um, a, a mask that's not fitting right. Some days it seems like there's a whole lot of these factors, and you, and you know, and then you listen to the podcast, and it's all about relaxation, and it's like, well, how do I actually make that a reality? So it's it's good to sort of talk to people about how they do it and uh, rationalizing. It sounds like a good technique, but um, it's easier said than done, I think, some days. But um, yeah, yeah, that if. That's not going to work for everybody. Um, worse for some people, but oh, we we might get, we might get more into that as this interview progresses. But um, at the moment you are stuck. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I I saw the uh, drama coming with the virus, and I thought about uh, my options. And let's say I, I voluntarily got stuck in in Bali. I'm able to work from here. Uh, it's a good excuse for a really long holiday, live in a different country. You know, I knew I wouldn't be doing much diving right now anyway, so why not kick back and do something a little different and save some money? Things are really cheap here, and you know, I'm having having a good time. Add it to my life experiences. Yeah, nice, man. I got away for a year into Asia as well, so I'm kind of familiar with some of it, but at least you're beachside. Yeah, I wasn't planning on them locking uh, the beaches down. That wasn't part of the uh, the plan, but everything else has gone really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you're from California. These days, when you're not in Bali, you, you're generally living in Sydney. Um, tell us a little bit about your experience sort of um, learning to spearfish there in Sydney. Yeah, so Sydney, I moved in 2011, and I picked up where I left off with my cousin, Derek Cruz, who was quite a few years ahead of me experience-wise, but 
uh, a really great teacher for me when we were younger. I mean, he was my babysitter. He used to take me to school when I lived in Australia when I was younger. So, you know, we had the, the family connection and good communication. And also, you know, he, he, he was taking care of me. I wasn't some, you know, some blowing off the street. Um, so he, he really took his time with me, you know, as annoying as it was for him. He made sure everything was perfect. How, how I did my gear, he passed on all the information that he had and, you know, he, he knew I could keep up. So it was a, it was a sink or swim learning process. He's not patient, um, but he knew, he, he knows what I can handle. And yeah, he threw me in the deep end straight away. So, to, you know, no pun intended. Uh, yeah. So we, we started with the, the basics of what Sydney has to offer. We, you know, focused on learning about all the reef fish, where they were, what we like to eat, what his parents like to eat, what our neighbors like to eat, so we could cover uh, all the favors. Uh, and then, then we always talked about, uh, you know, kingfish and in Mulloway and Sydney. Uh, and that was a big topic of conversation for us when we were sitting in, you know, he's got a big shed where we work on gear and you know, we talk shop about trips and, and fish and, and that's definitely where it started was kingfish. I mean, initially I had, I didn't have a car. I moved to Australia with like $250 in my bank account and all my gear was pretty much borrowed from him. I had no money for new gear and all of my stuff had to be at his house because I had no car. So if I wanted to go diving, I had to wake up early from the city, get a bus to his place, you know, everything on his time. So it was very much, you know, he was the uh, he was a teacher and I was the student in every sense. So yeah, it was a uh, it was it was it was amazing, really learning and that excitement of just every new fish is like the coolest thing you've ever done. Especially you know you get a big blue moe or a big whatever it is, big black drummer. I mean, I took photos of all those fish. Now it's you know they're great memories, but now I, I probably wouldn't shoot any of them. Do you remember the process of um, learning to identify a fish and then plan an approach and then think about how you're going to hunt them effectively? Like what was your sort of acquisition process for, for species with, with spearing in Sydney? Yeah, well, uh, Derek has a marine and, and freshwater biology background um, and he's highly studied. So he was a really good resource for fish identification. He has all the books. I mean, he, he could edit those books. He finds all the errors. He knows the fish inside and out. Uh, so as far as identification goes, he's, he's the pro. He's still my encyclopedia, you know, 10 years later or so. And um, with him as well, he would, he, would, he would take the time. The one thing he was patient with, he'd say, do you see that? What? You see that down there? And he would talk me through it. That's this fish. That's a red rock cod. They're normally like this. And and he'd, he'd test me. He'd tell me something once and then, hey, do you see that? And if I get it right, he'd, he'd be stoked. But otherwise, he wouldn't tell me. He said, you got to figure it out. Go down and find it and, and look it up on your phone later. So he was uh, not, a, he didn't baby me. Like, we'll put it that way. And uh, yeah, and, and just watching him, uh, he's a pro. So watching him and the way he approached fish and I just, I just kept track. Um, and that's, that's how I learned. Just watch and learn, watch and learn, and, and pay attention. And I didn't let myself get distracted. I tried to make the learning the fun part. Yeah, it, it was a really, really quick learning process. Are you still learning now? Yeah, um, I have uh, different projects. Uh, now I'm spending less time on fish, more uh, learning how to shoot with my left hand. But 
Yeah, fish, fish wise, the last couple of years, I've spent more time in the tropics, uh, learning some of the more, some of the more peculiar species there. Because after spending a lot of time in Sydney and the New South Wales coast, you get a lot of chances on, on you know, kingfish, mulloway, all those reef fish, and it becomes, you know, a bit, bit more second nature um, and more well, doesn't mean you get the fish, but when they scoot off, you're like, oh, yeah, I did that last time, I did that last time. But, um, yeah, the last few years, I spent more time diving in, in Fiji and Indonesia and Queensland, and there's still a, a few fish there I, I definitely haven't uh, figured out at all, and, and some I haven't had a, a chance on, which, uh, which is interesting. You know, the, the difference between, a, you know, a twitchy fish in the, the tropics, like, say, a, a purple cod and then a snapper in New South Wales, they're both uh, tricky in the right scenario, and they can both be kind of easy in the right scenario, but, and they have different behavior, the way that snapper can keep distance or or shoot off 100 miles an hour whereas the purple cod you know can it's in front of you and you think you're just gonna have a whole two or three seconds to shoot it and then all of a sudden it just you just see a little puff of sand and you know, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you know just as you put a little pressure on the trigger and yeah it's 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 really fun to learn about that that kind of new fish This episode of the Noob Spiro podcast is brought to you by the world's greatest spearfishing magazine, Spearing Magazine. There are news and reviews for the latest spearfishing equipment and gadgets inside. There's practical how-to and DIY type articles. There's spearing adventures from crazy noobers like you from all over the world. And uh, it's, it's a magazine that you can pick up or you can look at. And if you've got the digital subscription, you can flick through and let it inspire your next spearfishing adventure, even if you're having a dry run. Keep the stoke alive. Check it out at spearingmagazine.com. If you're away from the good old USA, though, check out the international subscription. That's at spearingmagazine.com. Guys, check out KillshotSpearguns.com. They're based in the Florida Keys. Ed Martin's given listeners $30 off Killshot Spearguns and 10% off freediving classes through to April the 1st. Check it out. Use the code NOOB to save. If you are on the phone or you head into the shop to visit Ed, just say crikey, mate, or something like that, and uh, he'll give you some, he'll give you a, a deep discount. Check him out, KillshotSpearguns.com. A lot of guys, when they get further along, they've f- forgotten sort of what their what their new species acquisition sort of like how how the process sort of works. I mean, or it's more of an unconscious sort of process. For me, it was always about first being able to identify them, like their silhouettes, the way they moved, um, the distinctive sort of markings and coloration, maybe underwater, and then sort of thinking about how I could get within range or whatever it was. Um, sometimes it's not even that it's just finding where the bloody things are and they're actually relatively easy to hunt but you've got to be in the right spot at the right time how, how does your process work like say you want to target something new like you went back to california maybe you heard about like i mean we could go with a classic like white sea bass or something or even just a calico bass one of those species but what was your sort of your thought process with a little bit of experience about how you were going to begin targeting something like that um, yeah, my my main technique is something I do uh, with with work, my my personal life, like any goal. Um, I'm I like to research. So yeah, let's say I'm going to Southern California. I'll I'll just start researching. 
like every single possible fish I could, could, could encounter. And I start to, I figure out what's a big one. What's a, what's a small one? What do they look like when they're juvenile? And, you know, having my cousin as a resource resource and having all the books I'm looking at before I go on a trip and let's say, you know, Queensland, there's so many fish, but Southern California is easier. There's, you know, a dozen target species and you can include the lobsters and, and, uh, you know, some of the other shellfish and that. And I'll, and I'll start studying. What's a, what's a good one? What's a really big one? I'll read all the records and I, I'll just keep looking at photos. By the time I shot my first kingfish, I had looked at photos of every single record fish from Mexico, California, um, New Zealand, Australia, from each state. I knew who shot each record from you know, each area. I read about them. I looked at other fish that they shot. So by the time I, I shot my first kingfish, I had looked at every video on YouTube and every photo I could possibly find on Facebook, Instagram, the internet, you know, archival photos going back to like the 60s. So by the time I, I, could, I could see the fish, I, I didn't really know the behavior. That's one thing that's hard to study, but I knew exactly what it was. I knew what the size, I knew if it was legal or not. I knew if it was special, you know, something really, and I had a rough idea of like the rarity. So that was, that was one thing that really helped me. Like it, I've had maybe uh, two or three experiences in the water where I looked at a fish and I said, I, I don't know what that is. So that's, that's one thing that our, everyone can read and study, but some people, more distracted, worrying about buying a, a new big gun that's probably more than they need or, or thinking about their, their gear and new, new, new. Um, but that's something that can help you so much. Really, really, really good divers all the time that are incredibly talented and much better divers than me in the water. And I've watched them swim by fish or ask me a question. They can't even describe the fish to me well enough for me to, to figure out what it is. That has nothing to do with how good a diver you are. Uh, there's so many top divers out there and barely dive 20 meters and they're on the, the smokes and the beers all night and they they make all the good divers look like idiots because they know they they do their homework things don't swim by them they don't miss things and and observation is another another really big part of that that's much more difficult to learn so they're more fishermen in the classical sort of way of thinking about fish rather than uh than freedivers or, or, or gear guys. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And that, those, those are the guys. It's funny working out, you know, what your orientation is towards, do you know what I mean? Like I, I talk to different people all the time, you know, and some of them are just absolute gear fanatics and they, they might be quite good at hunting and half decent at freediving, but generally people have a focus on one or the other. Sounds like you've put a fair, fair bit of focus onto learning your species and thinking about them. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's correct. But I don't want to lead you off. Um, I'm known by all my friends as being very particular about my gear. All right, but OCD. Yeah, it's not something I overlook at all, but it is perfect. I don't like using anyone else's equipment. I'll use Derek's equipment, my cousin, because it's exactly the same as mine. But anyone else, I'd rather pick up the camera and and stop spearfishing for the day. I just, I don't have any interest unless it's up to my standard. So... It just is what it is. I don't, if I don't know how they did it, I don't watch them do it, then the whole time in my head, I, I'm uncomfortable and I, I don't want to shoot some amazing fish with, with gear. I, I personally didn't fully service and, and change everything and make it the way I like it. And I, I think everyone should be like that because you should, it's a respect thing. 
I get it. Um, it's something I'm starting to get better at. I wouldn't say I'm perfect at it. How have you learned about equipment? Have you trialed different stuff and then just sort of like worked out exactly what it is you like and why you like it and then you just stick to it? Uh, I... I haven't come up with too many original ideas on my own. Uh, I've been really, really fortunate who I've spent time with in the water and who I've met in the diving community to discuss all their ideas on on gear. Um, you know, Tony Hugh has been really influential. Uh, I use edge guns regularly. Greg Smith uh, helped me a, a lot. I, I was lucky enough to go to South Africa for a competition with my cousin and, and sit down with Rob Allen and, and Jeremy at the shop and asking them questions, as many as I could in the few hours that I got. And then I went back the next day after I thought more about what they said. And I so I'd like to think that if you looked at my equipment, I could point to every single part of my guns, my fins, and I could say, you know, that's Greg Smith, that's Tony Hugh, that's Rob Allen, that's that's Simon Tripp, that's, um, you know, because I've, I've taken one piece of everything to, to work for what I do in, in my diving, you know. Rob Allen's stuff works great for his diving, so not everything is going to be perfect for me. And Tony Hugh and Greg are in Queensland and, and they, they're shooting different fish. And, and then I have to add my own style into it. So I tailor my, my gear for the, the fish and, and the environment we're in. And I try to keep thinking if, uh, you know, you want to be the worst diver in the room, always, because you're learning the most and you're moving forward. I always take from people that can, you know, put their money where their mouth is. You know, I don't, I don't pay attention to anything really on social media. I just, Pay attention to the people that can that can back it up, you know, and they approve it. So, why am I not going to listen to them? So it's kind of like a you know a smorgasbord of all this great advice that I've I've just kept track of over the years. And time and a bit of time sounds like a bit of time to ruminate on it and think about it yourself, and then come back and and ask more questions. That sounds like a a pretty good uh, analytical approach to. Um, to thinking about some of the stuff as well. So species and gear are something you think about a lot. What about the freediving side of things then? Uh, well, I started off, uh, you know, splashing around the shallows, uh, hung over with my cousin and no real um, advice uh, on the, the diving thing. It was more just uh, follow me and let's look at fish and enjoy yourself and let's see how you go. Um, the, the diving thing... You know, I spoke to a few people initially that gave me some great advice um, about playing it safe. Um, you know, just one little thing from everybody. And, and I took everything in mind. You know, if you're talking to someone who dives 40, 50 meters easily, the advice they're going to give you, you know, you need to remember what they're doing. And if you're at 10 meters, keep it in mind. Like Ray Powell told me from Divar, that was just really important to me was you shouldn't ex you shouldn't learn faster than one meter of depth per year. So if you start at 10 and you just started, you have no business diving 20 meters next week. There's no reason for it. You don't know what you're doing. You know, I tried to do deep dives and when I first started and I felt really weird and I, I wasn't used to it. So I, I just, I progressed slowly on the free diving and focused more on the the gear and the fish and the free diving, it comes. You, you need to spend time in the water, which was Ray's point. It's the same reason they have surgeons in school. You got you, you really need to know what you're doing and you need to have the experience. You don't have time to think and it is dangerous. We're not supposed to be underwater holding our breath. So I think I, I think I got your point. It was like 
you know, you you were stressing sort of, you know, thinking more about the species and the, and, and getting your equipment right and allowing the free diving side of things to progress, um, you know, as you know, appropriately for sort of where you're at. I was listening to um, the Freedive Cafe the other day and he interviews sort of like hardcore freedivers and there was one guy on there talking about um, he was always getting squeeze, like lung squeeze. And, you know, they, these guys are talking about depths that most of us, you know, we're not even really terribly interested in, to be honest. But um, it was the same point. It was, you know acclimatizing yourself at a, at a level before you sort of try and push on and you know really push the barriers too far i, I think that is a big part of it it's like there's a, there's some physiological adaptation that, that just takes time and um and experience and wisdom and being relaxed at those depths takes a little while to do as well like that yeah it's, it's a it's a massive point sometimes in queensland we we sort of get rushed to depth because um a lot of the good the good hunting ground and we don't have a lot of shallower stuff around to hunt so it's sort of like we almost get forced into um to deeper diving maybe earlier than we we should yeah it's very true um but still one one nice thing to keep in mind as well for me and i've done a bit of diving in queensland and in the tropics where you know the 20 to 30 range is where most of the fish are at i mean years of really diving regularly i've shot so few special fish past 20 meters. I mean, I've enjoyed the dives, I've seen great stuff, but at the end of the day, most of the really cool stuff, like the photos that I, you know, that my mother has printed out at home, they're fish I shot in like five meters or less, especially the big ones. So, I mean, what's the depth really at that point? Four strong reasons to shop at spearfishing.com.au. They have a price beat guarantee on any Australian price for spearfishing equipment if they stock it. $15 flat rate shipping across Australia. They've got a 30 day hassles free returns policy and you can save 20 bucks on every purchase over 200 by using the code NoSpear at checkout when you shop online. Added to that, if you order gear online, it arrives quickly. It's very well packaged. It's a literal no-brainer if you're a spear in Australia. Shop at spearfishing.com.au. Use the code NoSpear and save. I've got a message for those of you that are just starting out. You are super curious about spearfishing and freediving, but you've got no idea. Uh, I have got a perfect offering for you. It's called Break the 10 Meter Barrier. And it's a course, it's an online video course with training. And all the purpose of the course is to teach you the very basic techniques that can get you down to that first 10 meter bit and start enjoying the ocean. Whether you just want to go free diving or you want to start spearfishing, this has got a really great introduction to just give you the basic skills and knowledge you need in order to get down there and just start. It's a place to start. Now you can go to howtofreedive.com, check out the Break the 10 meter Barrier course, and you can do that for free. If you like the style of the course and you can see that it's going to be something that you're interested in, you want to purchase, use the code NoSparrow to save some dosh, aka Cheddar, <laughs> aka Cheddar. I'm stealing that from Joe Rogan, but what do you do? Save some dosh, use the code NoSpero. Get that in ya. Well, let's, let's get into it then. Let's talk about a memorable fish for you. You've shot a few special ones in your time. Um, massive cobia, um, dog tooth. You've, you've shot a few different special fish. What's one that sort of you love to sort of um, think about in hindsight maybe? Yeah, I mean, shooting the the big trophy fish that you spend years to work on is always something 
that you think about. Um, but really, the first the first special fish you shoot is just that's the one you think about. You you look at the photo for weeks on end, thinking about the day, how it all happened. You have dreams about it, but you know when when you're a bit more experienced and practiced, you get that special fish, and it's more like, hey, I got the job done. When it's that first special fish, it's, it's magic. Like you, you're ecstatic. It's like someone, you know, slips you some drugs. You're just floating around because you're just so excited about that. You know, it's more of a fantasy come true. Whereas, yeah, when you're experienced, it's yeah, it's, this is what I came to do. This is what I and I did it. So it's just a job well done. Yeah, like the first fish I ever shot was was just it was awesome. It was uh, it was the coolest day of my year. So what happened? Uh, well, I was with Derek, as all my diving was uh, for the first few years. And I think it was, I came to Australia in June 2011. And, and then the whole lead up to moving to Australia, he was sending me information about fish and sending me the New South Wales rules and regulations, his work schedule, his school schedule, you know, what, what to expect, uh, gear stuff. And, and we talked about kingfish a lot because that was what we were that was the the biggest fish that was easy to get in Sydney. Yeah, so I, I it was on it was on my mind all the time. When am I going to shoot a kingfish? What what's these fish about? Like, and you go to these spots, and we spent you know from June to I think I ended up shooting one in maybe August or or September or something like that. But we went to these spots, and he'd tell me, "Oh, I saw big ones here." And you know, you look at the school of bait, and if you've never seen one, you just imagine it in your head. Oh, what the fish would kind of swim through the bait like this, or would it go around? And just sort of start to imagine it. So you build, you build it up. You get yourself overly excited, which can be a problem because when you see finally see the fish, you're so excited you can't hold your breath. So something, something to keep in check. But yeah, we we just kept going, and I remember swimming through bait and just. Always excited. I always kept it. I was never, never down, even though it took a few months. And yeah, we were on, uh, he had bought a small boat uh, recently and we, uh, we were with another buddy and we were just kind of going through the eastern suburbs of, of Sydney, checking headland to headland. And it was, uh, yeah, nice conditions, nice day. You know, I was, I was super happy. I was probably hungover as well then. Um, but regardless, I was in my early 20s, so I was invincible. Um, yeah, we, we finally got to maybe the middle of the day and we get into a spot, um, just jump off the boat. And within seconds, there's a huge wall of, of kingfish, you know, kind of 10 to 15, maybe bigger kilos, just everywhere. And I've never seen fish that big. I've never seen so many fish. And, you know, they're from the bottom to the surface pretty much. And, uh, and it quickly became a a vortex. And I think I was just staring at him. But anyways, it was too much for me. I had a sensory overload. I didn't even know I was holding a gun. Uh, you know, by the time they moved on, all I could see was Derek. Uh, he had shot a fish and was fighting it. And I was, I was fascinated. I'm like, oh, wow. Wow. That, so this is how it works. They come in, you shoot one, you start fighting it. So I watched what he was doing and it was a good shot. And I mean, I had no idea about etiquette or second shots or you know, what help does he need? So I sort of stood back. I'm more of a quiet type. I don't like to get involved. So, hey, you need anything? And, you know, he just sort of brushed me off like, hey, get out of here. Um, so I just watched and he landed the fish and it was a nice sized kingfish. And yeah, I just, yeah, I was stoked. I was super stoked. I remember being like genuinely happy for him and seeing it. And 
It made it, it was awesome for me. It's real. It's a real thing. He can do it. I can do it. So it was great for me. It opened a door in my brain. I thought that was pretty much the end of the day. And I, I was so excited. And, you know, because I said, oh, one weekend, it'll be me. You know, I, I, I've been waiting months. What's well, another couple of weekends? And yeah, so we went to one more spot, the last spot. And we did quite a bit of swimming around. And yeah, just, you know, following the drop off and, and looking for bait and whatever, and just enjoying it. Cause at that point I was still seeing a new fish every dive and just amazing. And, you know, everything was amazing. And, uh, yeah, I look up and sure enough, there's a school of kingfish coming towards me. And, uh, Derek was about a hundred meters or so in, in front of me. And I dove down and, it, you know, four or five meters and, I was like, all right. Yeah, just instinct shot one and uh, started playing. And it wasn't the best shot. It was a little bit high. And then I realized I could see in the corner of my vision, Derek had actually shot a fish and been moving towards me. So it was a lot closer than I, than I thought. And they were, you know, doing the circles right next to each other. And I'm thinking, oh, do I pull hard? Do I let it go? And I just went with my intuition. And, you know, we both landed the fish at the same time. And uh, yeah, it was just, you know, I went from so stoked and high to just like, you know, I was, I'm a quiet guy, but I, inside my head, I was just like, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> like, there was some primal connection to being, you know, a, a human and a man. There was all this build up to it. And I was like, yeah, this is it. This is my, this is going to be my, my thing. This is my sport. <laughs> and yeah, we took all these photos and, you know, it was just, I was so happy with it. And I, yeah, and being able to, to land it on my own and make it the most of a terrible shot. And it was just, yeah, I was, I was happy with myself. I was happy with Derek. It was just, it was super cool. I love the story. It was, I, I want to dig into some practicalities with it. So excuse my callousness, but um, one thing that I was thinking about as you're talking about, is I think a lot of new guys struggle with the idea about how to play a fish, like particularly a bigger fish and analyzing how good the shot is they've placed in the fish and you know and when when you sort of you were just talking about it you know you didn't know whether to pull it in hard or let it let it go a bit longer um how do you sort of advise people through that now yeah i i find that's one thing in in my diving that um and i hear it from people much more experienced than me as well as in, in dirty water or on distance and with fish that are explosive um you know, it's hard to be 100% about the shot, either how far, if the spear is penetrated fully, or if it's, uh, you know, a little low or a little high. That's So I like to just, it, it depends on the fish, and it depends on the options. Like, it's either going to be a good shot or a little bit suspect, or, you you know, you, you need some serious luck to land the fish. Um, so I try to make my decision quickly because you have to stick with what you're doing. So for example, with a kingfish, they're going to run for the bottom and the size of the fish is important. The bigger the kingfish, like the better the shot you need because you need to hold it up off the bottom. Whereas a smaller fish, you know, it's not, uh, it's not quite as capable to get, get down and, and pull you under with it. So yeah, I, I just, I make a quick decision and I like to stick with it. So if I, if I'm confident, um, and it's a kingfish, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll lean into it. I'll, I'll hold on to that rig line and because I know it's going to go on the bottom. So either you're going to lose it in the bottom or you're going to lose it to a, to a bad shot. You don't have that, that in between. Whereas, you know, mackerel, I, I'm always going for the rear end of the shot. I, I don't do the, the hero shot. I don't, I mean, 
If I can tickle it with the end of the spear, sure, I'll go for a headshot and try and roll it. But I've done that one out of every you know, 20 mackerel, even if they're close. I always just like, I don't like losing fish. That's the only thing that bothers me in spearfishing. When I lose a fish, I, like, I get a bad gut feeling from it. So I'd rather take the super easy shot and then, and then go from there. And they don't fight on the bottom. So you can just be so, so, so delicate. So shot placement, you're talking central body mass. Yeah, for, for mackerel, whereas, whereas kingfish, I'm always going to go for a, a, an angle away through the head shot because they're always going to run for the bottom and you need something, a really secure point to really pull on it. Whereas with mackerel, you have no business pulling on it ever. There's no reason. Unless you're at the end of the fight and you have a shark coming in and you can see you have a really good holding shot, then obviously you're going to want to yank it in. But, you know, that's a more unusual scenario, getting more common now, I guess. But yeah, so it depends on the fish. Um, the hard part's really just being sure about the shot placement because that's the decision for you. I mean, if it's a bad shot, you don't have much choice. Like, you, you can't pull hard. It's guaranteed to come up. It's one of these sort of ones that seem, you seem to learn by intuition too. And unfortunately, intuition's trained by mistakes. And, and, and so that means we lose fish to learn. Sometimes it's painful to watch people learn the same lessons that you've learned, which is, I mean, it's partly what triggers the question. What about um, tension, like on a sh- on the shooting line? So when you started talking before, I was thinking about even like reef fish, you know, like mackerel are a good example of tear-offs. I've heard wahoo, I haven't shot one yet, um, but parrot are another one that tear off all the time. It's like you've almost got to give them all the line, and then I, I almost try and swim down to them and grab them. I don't even let them do anything. If I can grab hold of them at the start, that's even better but you've almost got to let them take everything because they just seem to be able to tear off everything yeah um i'm i'm on your page with the the reef fish you know i never have more than two wraps of line on my my gun i keep it real short and that's one of the reasons um it's because really the shooting lines for them not you um so you're just giving them help you know if you're if you're trying to take long shots i mean come on uh, you're, you're wasting your time really. So yeah, with, with reef fish, I always preference to, uh, to, to go ahead and, and grab them. And if I'm in a position like with a parrot or a reef fish that, that tears off pretty easily, I also know those fish are, they love going in caves and they do, once they get in a spot, even if there's a spear in them, they will stop fighting and they'll get up in a crack. So that it's an intuition and it's a bit of a, a bit of a big, big call. But if I see what they're doing and I, and I don't have the breath hold or I decide it's not safe to go fish underwater, um, you know, maybe there's sharks around or maybe it's a big dive and it's always better to, to go home than to get a pair of fish, you know? If I have the, the option, I'll, I'll preference grabbing it and then see what it's doing. I mean, the fish usually tells you in a half a second which direction it's going, and they generally try and find some sort of structure or cave. And if it's a small cave, they just park up in there. So you can always let it go. And yeah, you're going to lose a fish here or there, but I find I'm really successful just um, letting it sit on the spear and, and relax in the cave. And then I go down and I don't try to second shoot it or anything. My, my focus is to get that other end of the spear, the flopper end. Because as soon as you have your hand on that, you got it. So I don't try and mess with the fish. I don't touch it. I don't touch the shooting line. I don't give it any reason to panic. I try to find another way where I can just grab that, that flopper end of the spear. Because then I, then I know I got it. So that's, but that's an intuition call. I mean, if it's a really big cave and they got a lot of wiggle room, they're going to keep fighting. And some reef fish, they're going to keep fighting. Like the jack's going to just keep going around in circles and be crazy until it tears off. So you don't have that luxury. 
another part of that's your your equipment you know um flopper tuning if you don't tune your flopper you you, you don't have that option the flopper is just going to close and the fish is going to come off like 99 percent of the time but you tune your flopper and and you actually pay attention every day when you go out and you check it during the day and make sure that thing's tuned small reef fish are are a pretty safe bet um in a, in a cave so yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking about those decisions in that that scenario. Double floppers. What's your take on them? You know, uh, I've used them a little bit. Uh, they're not they're not really my preference. Uh, but again, I, I'm not super experienced, so I don't I don't want to comment on them too much. Um, I know they work. Uh, one of the big drawbacks, like with bigger reef fish and longer shots, like you know, there you you have more to push through a fish especially a scaly fish. And yeah, you have the advantage that, you know, the one flopper can break and then the other one, but it's, it's only holding one flopper at a time and then it moves to the next one. It's, um, so that, those staggered floppers are not exactly what they're cracked up to be. And yeah, they're, yeah, they're a little clumsy and funny. You know, I, I've done a lot of competition diving, so I'm definitely a single flopper person. And also socially, like quite often when the fish are on, they're on for one magic moment. So I like to be able to shoot, get that fish off the rig and shoot again. Cause that's, that can be, that's the prime time. And when people are around with, you know, two wraps and extra rubbers and double floppers and stuff. And the people I dive with, we all have the same style. And, and we also get to giggle together because they get one and they, you know, they're caught up in the boat swearing about the, you know, all the extra stuff that they never needed. You know, it's much better to practice your shots and be patient with a single flopper than to rely on something extra at the end of the day. Consider it a specialized piece of equipment, not a standard issue stuff. Yeah, nice. Ah, cool. All right. What's, um, what's the cleverest fish you've ever encountered? Uh, the cleverest for me, or at least the one I've struggled with the most has been the yellow lip in the, in the tropics. Um, just because they keep their distance constantly, you gotta be clever. I mean, people get them in the shallows. Uh, they like the shallows, but it's the fish that's frustrated me quite a, quite a bit recently, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I've shot, I've shot a couple of little ones. So that's it. It's a yellow lip. What, what are the other names for it? Just a yellow lip emperor. Ah, okay. Yeah, kind of like a, a long nose, um, but a, a bit of a different profile. Not as not so much of a long nose. They're, they're quite nice looking fish, but a bit more obscure. It's not really on everyone's list, but I was impressed by it compared to like the big eye sea brim and like the Maori sea perch and some of those other reef fish you find in the same areas. I mean, I've been able to shoot a few of all those other species and, and quite big ones, but I haven't been able to get good yellow lip and I've spent just as much time with all of them. So I think that, that pretty much sums it up. The other ones are much easier and, and that one I haven't been able to really get a hold of. So, What's your process and what's been working so, or not working so far with them? Mm, well, I've tried to work them in the shallows and, you know, I've tried eye contact i've tried you know uh, estimating or guessing where they're going to be uh the closest i've been has been in the shallows figuring out their routine often they'll have some sort of figure eight course or a series of the same caves you know there can be a cave system with eight entrances but they'll often pick the same entrance and the same exit so sometimes i'll figure out their circuit and then as soon as i decide on a spot i can and hang out and hope it turns around that corner like in the process i'll spook it and then it you know it, it's gone 
one method that I have gotten close on. The other one that seems a bit futile is just doing a big dive, finding where they are usually in like an open sandy patch in between structure um, in deeper water and trying to dive as far away from them as possible and use structure to, to crawl along the bottom very, very slowly without looking and picking a distance I think I can make a shot at and then just waiting. I think that's what triggers this question for me. It's like it generally picks up a fish that's intriguing someone at this point in time. And I think spearfishing is that journey of mastery where it's always, you know, some new species or new challenge that we're, we're taking on. So it's, it's interesting to hear yours at this stage. So when you, when you go out and have a good day out, what, what does that look like to you most days? Well, now locally, um, in Sydney, I'll, uh, you know, I'm not too focused on, on shooting fish. Uh, it's more to enjoy the dive or to get some uh, time in the water before a big trip. So, yeah, most of the Sydney diving is either a competition, which I haven't been doing many of the last couple of years, or um, just doing some kilometers, swimming, and just getting some breath hold in um, and just enjoying what we see. And sometimes I'll just take my camera and try and take pictures. And uh, I'm more excited to catch lobsters than, you know, shoot a big kingfish. It's a lot of meat and one big kingfish feeds me for so long and I don't like to eat the same thing every day. But, you know, one small reef fish, which is one dinner for me and, and a couple of lobsters is, yeah, I'm much more excited about that. And you don't have to carry a big heavy thing back to the car and it tastes good and easy and enjoyable. Fill it. You don't have to fill it. You don't have to fill it a big pile of fish and um, deal with the mess and the scales and the slime and the frames. You just take your fish for dinner and, and you're good to go. Yeah, I, I save that for the, the big road trips and the big boat trips yeah. where it's a focus diving every day for a week and you get all the gear out to fill it at the end of the day. You got someone on vacuum sealing duty. We got someone on filleting. We got someone making dinner. You know, it's like a, a factory line and yeah, so I save it for that, and then everything's nicely packed and frozen, and that's more when I, yeah, call, call it a meat run, if you will. But There's a time and a place, isn't yeah. there? It's kind of like um, spearfishing, regardless of sort of the volume of the catch. So, I mean, the only thing that goes up when you shoot that much fish is the workload, but like you say, you get a system going with a bunch of dudes and or, or ladies, if they're into if As recently I encountered, more than half the crew were ladies, and uh, so that was nice. But, yeah, get a system in place, it's good fun. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, – yeah, and also, uh, unfortunately, you know, you, you shoot a couple fish and you get, uh, you know, a really big version of one fish, and uh, I, I lose interest, you know. So as soon as I get a, you know, a big kingfish, it sort of was like, okay, you know, like this is just food. It's not uh, the thrill of the hunt is not not part of it for me anymore. So I just uh, I'm thinking about the work. I'm thinking about what I want to eat for dinner all week. You know, and I'm thinking about carrying it back to the car. Is this better for someone else to shoot? Do you want to increase your bottom time and uh, lower your comfortable operating depth? Of course you do. I've got a great offer for you. It's a 28-day freediving transformation. can be found at noobspiro.com forward slash TED. You can learn how to increase your bottom time, dive deeper, 
using proven freediving training techniques in the comfort of your own home. And the great thing about the 28 day freediving transformation is you only need a small investment of time. You need 25 to 40 minutes, three days a week, and five minutes on two of the other days. And you can significantly improve your freediving performance in, tw- in only 28 days. Check it out at noobspirit.com forward slash TED and jump on the 28 day freediving transformation. Big shitty question here, possibly controversial. Um, what's your take on competitions? Um, uh, as someone who's done, you know, I was at one point doing 12 to 15 competitions a year. You've won a few too. Yeah, a few. Not, not as many as my, my teachers and mentors, but a couple when they let me win, you know, when Derek's sick or letting his little cousin get a, get a number one, <laughs> he'll, he'll step aside. But um, yeah, I've, I've been really lucky to do them in, in different uh, countries and a, a lot in Australia and, you know, and, and understand the different formats um, and what people do and what they don't do. Personally, you know, like, and in, in, uh, I really like the New Zealand format of competition. I think that's something uh, that, that everyone is interested in and what everyone wants to move in that direction, you know, but it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, competitions, especially in, uh, you know, the Sydney metro area, give us very, very valuable scientific data on a whole array of fish that we're not getting data anywhere else from. So it's a very constant, regular, um, and the scientific community benefits from that. But at the same time, we're, we're killing living things. We're adversely affecting um, you know, at, to some level, uh, um, the fish populations and um, at the cost of, of science, at the cost of, you know, exercise, at the cost of, you know, people having a good time and, and also people eating. So there's, there's positives and negatives to it, uh, in, in, in every aspect. Everyone's interested in, in doing better and lessening the effects um, by restricting the score um you know what fish you can shoot the quantity of each and we've been slowly working you know as we learn we've been learning also hey you know we're not shooting as many of those fish and there's been changes made um to offer those fish to uh to repopulate and, and have their numbers increase so it's helping us do better but uh, you know uh, but there's a cost but yeah i enjoy comps uh i just as long as nothing's going to waste if people are having a good time and people are respectful and, and nothing's getting wasted, I mean, you know, a competition in Mexico I went to, all the fish were sold lo- local fish market and that money was used to raise funds for uh, local kids to, to, for their schooling because they have annual schooling costs after year eight, I believe. So, and a lot of kids don't get to go to school because they don't have the money. So, you know, I care about that. Hell for leather. That's, that's awesome. No waste. You're helping somebody who needs it and everyone's having a good time and being safe. Uh, you know, what's wrong with that? No, nah, no, nah, it sounds all good to me. Was that the La Paz International? Yeah, yeah, that was the La Paz. All the comps run out of um, the uh, Palapas Ventana. They do, well, I'm not sure about this year, obviously, but they have a yeah, Baja shootout and they do the Blue Water uh, World Cup in there. They even had a, a neighbor business that did their own little comp as well. And they all are on the same program, pay for kids to go to school, you know, teach them, take care of the ocean with the money we use from, awesome. you know, try and counter the effect. You, you did all right in that comp, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a good comp. I, I had fun. What was the result? Yeah, I won. <laughs> you're, you're quite a, a humble guy there. I like that. Um, 
what 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 was your uh, sort of? Can you remember your bag for the day? What did you end up taking in that comp? Uh, it's a multi-day comp. Uh, the the blue, it's traditionally a pure blue water comp, but they added some reef fish to the list um, just because like the wahoo were really thin. Um, there was no yellowtail kingfish, which there normally are. There was no amberjacks. The water was really hot. It was like 31. I mean, I was getting nauseous in the lycra. Um, man, it was hot. And it was, it was 40, 41 outside, 31 in the water. And no shade on the boat and the fit. Yeah. Everyone knew about it. I think my combined bag was, yeah, I think I had a small Wahoo. I had a rooster fish. Uh, I had a big Kubera. I, did, I shot a milkfish. and had one other, one other pelagic. It's been like six or seven years. I think my big scores was, yeah, a Kubera every day. And I had a couple, yeah, a couple rooster fish on the sheet and yeah, it was pretty close. A fair bit of thinking and strategy goes into comps as well, which seems to probably favor your um, analytical sort of style, I guess. Yeah, it does. Um, I get in trouble too because I'm an overthinker. So um, I create a bit of stress and pressure by, you know, you just got to do things, not, uh, not think about it so much at the end of the day. Sometimes I get a little caught up wasting time overthinking or spending too much time on one fish. You know, no one's no one's perfect, and I've certainly bombed out of it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it is really helpful. Uh, you do knowing the area and and time management, um, and and also also equipment um, and speed uh, of your equipment. You know, having ex, you know, if you have an open muzzle versus a closed muzzle, you know, I can if you're shooting really small fish at the surface, and you can throw a spear into a closed muzzle gun without rigging the shooting line and load one rubber. I mean, I can shoot so many times per a minute and the guy next to me with two muzzle might only be able to do one. And I might have four chances because I got a nice, easy rubber that, you know, a child could load. I got just simple, 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 simple. Hey, you're, you're ahead of the game. And none of that has to do with how good you are of a diver. You know, that's just basic, basic stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's been fun, but a lot of comps, you know, I've just showed up for, um, and relied on a bit of luck or just just gone to have fun like the blue water comps in mexico in particular i mean i i was just there on holiday hanging out like they had that baja shootout comp i didn't even know about it so you want to do this one too said, yeah sure i'll do that and they gave me a partner off we win and yeah and the, the blue water classic in coffs harbor is an awesome comp that's just you can be competitive there if you want. Some people can't control themselves. Uh, you know, generally I'm pretty competitive, but that one, I just, yeah, it's such a fun place to dive and mad bunch of people. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. Hey, cool. Let's move on a little bit. Um, toughest situation. Um, you, you've, you've had some shitters. You've had some tough moments in the ocean. Um, maybe tell us about one or a few. Yeah. Um, I have one big one, um, but, you know, everyone's got a lot of shark stories and uh, I've definitely seen a few and had, uh, you know, bad luck with primarily bull sharks and one real ugly experience with a Mako. But yeah, no, last year I was bit uh, pretty badly on the right arm by a gray reef shark in Fiji. And that's, uh, it's changed my life radically. Um you know, it's a big reason why I'm living here now because um, I'm not super able to dive at the moment because, you know, I can't hold a gun with my right hand anymore. So I need to learn how to hold the gun with my left hand. Um, I was 
you know, super fortunate. Um, I, I can honestly say I'm, I'm happier now than I was before. Um, but you know, it's change, change, changes everything. I don't recommend it for anyone. It's a very intense experience. Um, it's physically painful. It's mentally painful. It's tiring. Um, yeah. So yeah, I was in, uh, I work in Fiji part of the year and I do a bit of diving over there and had a, have a really nice community of friends there. And eventually I started getting invited on, uh, some trips and, in August, I flew over to dive some ground that's, you know, off the map. It takes a couple of flights and a couple of boat rides. And, you know, it was awesome, awesome diving. Stayed in a village of, I think they have like 52 people. And just dove every day with the local boys and, and some of my really good friends there. And, yeah, unfortunately, on the, on the last day, um, I was coming up from a dive and I was doing more spotting um and flasher work and uh my we were looking for wahoo and my yeah my good friend jesse had just shot one about 30 kilos and um he was getting it in the boat and, uh, and then we just started doing some more drifts and i was just working the real gun and keeping an eye out on things and like i said it was the last day and we had a great trip there's no reason to go crazy just enjoying the scenery yeah, I was. We we did notice the the sharks earlier in the day. The gray reefies being a little bit unusual. They came up and and bit the flasher uh, and and tore it to pieces. And you know they're really erratic. But it was they didn't. They left us alone. And uh, there was no fish. We weren't we were nothing in the water. And we weren't burling. Uh, that's not. We weren't burling on that on that trip at all. Um, and I yeah, I went down for a dive um, to look at a mackerel. And there were some doggies as well down deep. And I pulled up from the dive at like 15 meters or something and just kind of looked at the scene to see what kind of fish were around. And I came up from the dive um, and I think I came up what we think is pretty close to the flasher. I didn't come in contact with it, but I, it was just off to my shoulder. And once I got to the flasher height, uh, I felt you know some like something big hit me in the back. Um, felt like someone punched me like on a speed bag um and then before i knew it uh there was just a yeah gray reefy was right in front of me kind of lunging for my face mask and out of instinct i just put my right arm up uh to block it and i mean it was just yeah it, so it grabbed it grabbed a hold of my arm a little bit lightly and then i sort of tried to pull away and i had a real gun in my left hand and i you know went to go hit it and then it sort of rearranged its grip on my arm and then it bit down really hard um, as I was hitting it and trying to, um, you know, I don't know why I did this, but I put the real gun between my, my legs um, and started hitting it. And I tried to stick my fingers in its eyes, like, cause it's, its teeth got stuck in my bones and um, like it was, I, I could tell it was stuck. It was trying to actually shake itself free and did some more damage that way. And eventually it came off and like knocked off my mask and I sort of grabbed the gun with my left hand and I could feel that there was another couple of sharks around me at that time. And I couldn't see cause there's a huge green cloud of blood at that point. And yeah, sort of, I felt the sharks on my legs and I sort of, I kicked and I couldn't see, but my friend Jesse was watching me from the top and yeah, he said, I kind of, you know, shoot the other ones away. I have no idea what really happened. And I came up and the sharks swam off and like, excuse the guard details. You could see like a lot of my skin and like tendons coming out of its mouth, like stringers and like right hand was like completely 
not functioning. Um, I had no control over it and you could see everything down to the bones and yeah, it was messy. And, uh, yeah, so got to the surface pretty quickly and yeah, we had to keep poking the sharks off at the surface until the boat came maybe 10, yeah, maybe 10, 15 seconds. So not, not long. And I flew into the boat. I don't even know how I got in the boat, but unassisted, no idea, like a seal, um, as you do when you're panicking. Yeah. And the, the only real problem was, uh, other than the obvious was we were really remote. Um, and I guess that's something I'd really like the listeners to pay attention to is, uh, you know, don't, don't be negative or pessimistic, but, um, do have a quick thought about a what if situation, depending on where you are, because I, it took, uh, you know, one boat ride to the village to get more fuel, which took two hours and a little bit. And then another boat ride to the next island, which took two hours and a little bit. And then I had to get in a taxi, um, you know, and by the time I was in the taxi, you know, I was on another planet from the blood loss and needed a lot of help. And by the time we got to that first clinic in that remote area, they didn't really have the capability to take care of me. Um, nor did they have painkillers, nor did they much else to say other than you need to go to a bigger hospital. So they, they cut the wetsuit off of me and bandaged me up and I sort of blacked out then. And then I, then I woke up on another boat to a bigger island um, and ended up at a hospital in Mombasa where they did the first couple surgeries, which were mainly like debridements and cleaning it and getting some of the teeth fragments and all that stuff out. And, you know, there was a bunch of stuff in my arm that wasn't supposed to be there. Um, and yeah, the whole time we had to work with it, you know, and this is really important. Like I had to work with the Australian embassy because when you're in that state, you know, I, I, I wasn't able to get on a commercial airline, even though I was lucid and able to walk around at that point, didn't have travel insurance. So the Medivac was like 180,000 or so. Um, so that's another thing for the people listening. Like if you're, if you're out somewhere, man, and read the fine print, make sure your insurance covers you. Like, what if I get bit? If you're diving, you can black out, you can get hit by a boat, you can get bit by some weird business thing, or you can get bit by a shark. And if you can't, if you're not covered for things, you know, travel insurance is a couple hundred bucks. Like, don't do what I did. Um, so, yeah, fortunately, the Australian embassy was able to help me and uh, write a letter and get me on a commercial uh, Qantas flight to Sydney. And that's when I got my first attention and first dose of painkillers. And it took like 54 hours. Um, and then obviously I was in hospital and I've had four additional surgeries. Yeah. Fixed this big hole. They transferred skin from one part of my body to the other. I lost 10 tendons completely off. So all of my extensor tendons off the top of my arm and they had to transplant three from the bottom to the top to get, um, some function back. And it took me months and months to even learn how to move my fingers and my hand again. And it was just so much therapy and time lost. Um, again, you know, it's a, it's a serious experience. I learned a lot, but you know, had I, had I, the doctors told me, had I took any more time to get to Australia, the infection, I would have 100% had the arm amputated. So if it wasn't for the people at the Australian embassy, I would have been um, without an arm. And, you know, this could have all been avoided with a, 
you know, I got lucky, but the next person probably won't. And a medivac really gets you out of trouble. Um, you know, infection's a serious problem with shark bites. So even from a gray reefy, which is not a big shark, and most people think they're harmless, but they're they're not harmless. Nah, this massive story, man. I wasn't aware of most of this background. I had a very broad stroke overview of some of it, and I wasn't even aware of whether or not you're going to tell the story. I mean, what are the? Let's go over the takeaways from from it. So, um, you, you're advising people that are looking at going to do these trips. What, what would you advise? advise? So we've, we've you know, we can think about the ob- obvious. We can talk about trauma kit, first aid. We can talk about improving the insurance. Um, what else? Yeah. So um, it takes five minutes to to quickly go over it in your head what what could possibly go wrong in a, on a trip five minutes to pay for insurance and yeah the worst part is reading all the fine print and just making sure you're covered and insurance mess around if you don't tick all the boxes they're not going to pay you so just make sure you tick the boxes and if you got to pay an extra 50 bucks for um you know dangerous activities riding a motorcycle going diving and if you're unsure get them on the phone it can be the difference between amputation or not and you know like don't mean to be dramatic infection will kill you so you know a little insurance cost and uh five ten minutes making calls and buying some stuff you know online i mean come on it's it's so easy and then you have that peace of mind like i really want people to learn from from my my experience and my my you know what what could have been a very big mistake so i mean that's the key thing uh i always have a trauma kit on the boat and again, it's tailored to, you know, I don't have a trauma kit full of little band-aids and uh, gauze for cuts and scratches. Like that doesn't matter. You can you can make it days and days and days. You, it's not important. My trauma kit is packed full of towels, tampons, and tourniquets because you, the use of tourniquets is a very, you know, controversial subject because you can easily kill a limb. And if you ask first aid, you ask the doctor, they're not going to give you advice on it. And I'm not either because improper use you'll have amputation as well uh, you know i i that's what i have in, in my kit because i know that's the difference between either losing a limb or or losing a friend and i had that kit because i always thought I'd, ha- I'd have to use it on someone i didn't want to go to bed every night and think oh why why wasn't i prepared um so i, I had it i didn't want to think much about it it's a really negative thing but geez it only takes five minutes like and I hope no one ever has to use it, and I hope never, no one ever has to claim on their travel insurance a medivac flight. But hey, so how how far on are you since like so? How long ago was this? That was August last year. So we're nearly we're not we're we're nine months past. Um, where where are you at now? How did you deal with the medical bills, and what's happening with your health now? Yeah, well, fortunately, I avoided a lot of bills until I got to Australia and got my treatment there citizen medicare i got private health there so i was really well covered i mean i yeah sure i I had to spend a few thousand bucks here and there but financially i I escaped unscathed um the the really the hard part was the loss of time you know like it's super painful uh like the infection the surgeries i had so so many staples close to a thousand stitches i have like terrible nerve pain that wakes me up like not nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now I've yeah I've uh, had to relearn how to use my right hand. Um, I can do most things with it, uh, but you know typing and uh, like I can't use my phone with my right hand. But big stuff is okay. I can exercise. I can you know do a push up for example. But there's no way 
do a text message. So detailed. It's like my hand is drunk all the time. So yeah, and that's part of the reason why I came here is because you know I'm not doing much diving right now while I'm healing. So I might as well be somewhere nice and relaxing and do my exercises and my therapy on my own. And you can work on on your computer as well. Yeah, I can work on it in in peace. Um, so yeah, it's um, no, it's come a long way. The surgical team that I had was amazing. You know, I had some of the best doctors in Australia working on me and their plastic surgeons as well. So that made it look pretty reasonable, but you know, I got a pretty wild set of scars and yeah, I've grown to love them. Um, no, I think, I think the experience definitely made me a better person. You know, I'm not traumatized. I've gone diving since with sharks, with gray reefies in particular. And I guess it's, it's all good. It's something, you know, I was always afraid of it happened. Like, you know, it is what it is. Um, I still think it was a mistake on my part by coming up from, you know, near the flasher and not, not, not addressing that those sharks were agitated already on a new level. You think the, sh- the sharks were, you triggered a, a, a compete mechanism, a competition mechanism? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not going to claim to be a shark expert or have any kind of, um, you know, behavioral analysis on an animal that I can't speak English with. But um, <laughs> I, I will say that um, in the future and everyone I've spoken to, as soon as you see, you know, most people, they wait until they're losing too many fish to sharks before they move. Now for me and what I recommend and after that experience and what I've seen, as soon as you have a shark start attacking an inanimate object like a flasher, it's time to move. So I really push that on people and also, you know, I've uh, spoken to some of my friends in Fiji. It's a very sharky place. And I've really been listening to the stories. And don't hang stuff off your belt. Don't have a throw flasher on your, on your belt. I've had a friend have a throw flasher eaten right off his hip. And I've had people get hit in places like, don't, why, don't, I don't care how convenient it is. Like, nothing shiny. Don't buy a big, shiny silver dive watch. Don't, yeah, don't have stuff hanging off your belt. Don't stick fish up your wetsuit. Don't, don't be playing around with the burly and not have, you know I mean, if you, you think diving's dangerous, you should have a spotter for diving. You need to have a spotter for whoever's doing burly if that's a technique you use because you're focused on what you're doing. You're trying not to stab yourself in your hand and you're just, you are just having a party with, with burly and you are blind. It's terrible. Has, has this affected your attitude towards sharks? Like some divers carry powerheads. Um, these guys in South Africa that um, regularly have run-ins with great whites and they have a much different take on those animals than shark conservationists do, that's for sure. Has it affected you in this way? You know, to this point, no. I haven't spent a lot of time diving since and I haven't been around so many sharks since. Um, and, you know, on a philosophical or intellectual level, you know, I'm, I still have the same attitude. I, I believe in, in balance. And also, you know, humans have started meddling with the populations of fish and sharks. And unfortunately, once you start messing with the system, then now we're the new, we're the new manager. So we have to manage. And um, I'm big on balance. If there's too, if too many sharks, I have no problem with them being killed. I mean, if there's too many of them and they don't have enough food, what are we going to do? Let them die of starvation or are we going to be humans and, and, and the suffering and manage? Yeah, you got to manage. So now, yeah, I just believe in, in scientifically bat based balance, hardly any sharks like here in Bali. It's, it's disturbing how few there are, but in parts of Australia, there's so many. And, you know, if we could take some of those, maybe move them over here, that'd be really nice, but it's not, it doesn't work like that. So yeah. 
Going from Sydney to Bali, um, management process of the fishery, um, it must give you, does it give you more of an appreciation for what you have in Australia? 100%. Uh, I've done a lot of diving in the third world and I've done a bit of diving here since yeah, 2013. And yeah, I mean, I'm some of the places I've been, I've been borderline just horrified of what they do. I mean, they, there's no rules. They just, they kill everything and anything that has the economic value. Uh, they, yeah, they don't have any interest in the future or any thought about it. It's just what the ocean provides is what you take. And, uh, you know, that's it. And a lot of the reef around is completely dynamited it looks like a ski slope underwater there's no big fish there's fish i would never shoot and they're swimming away from me like you know i'm the scariest thing i've ever saw i'm like why is that fish afraid of me but they're just so few fish i mean australia is is awesome as far as fish concerned i mean some of the the major cities there's a lot of pressure by recreational and spearfishing um and commercial uh, methods and and you notice the the difference, but all in all, um, it's amazing. I mean, enjoy what you have there. It's one of the best places to spearfish in the world. We're not going to get to um, some of the parts of the show today, just so I'm conscious of time. Um, but I did want to segue away from um, this big shark conversation. Um, it was really educational, but I'm conscious of uh, of, of of having a lighter note. Um, do you enjoy funny stuff when you're out spearfishing? Yeah, I love funny stuff. <laughs> um, have you got any good shit stories? Because I'm quite partial to them. Yeah, you know, uh, I grew up with a father who only laughs at potty humor. So it's, <laughs> it's something, I mean, I don't know what it is. Someone farts and there's not a fart I've ever heard that I didn't laugh at. I just, you know, we're one and the same. Um, honestly, the funniest I gotta say, Tony Huey and a few people listening to this are, are gonna crack up. I know he probably won't, but um, yeah, he is he's a peculiar man. He is also extremely generous and giving, and he doesn't tell many jokes. And he doesn't really laugh at any of the jokes you tell. And and sometimes you don't realize you're uh, you're listening to a joke yeah, yeah. until it sort of comes to the the conclusion. So he, he took uh, my cousin uh, Derek and I under his wing and invited us up to dive Morton and, uh, you know, off the Sunshine Coast and, and learn about uh, the fish up there and, and teach us about his guns and, you know, which are pretty much all we use ex- exclusively. And, uh, yeah, so he starts, he's, we drive by this spot on the Sunshine Coast that's just near a popular beach, stove all the time. And he starts talking about the spot and because we ask, you know, what's good over there? And he, yeah, he just keeps going on and on and on about these fish and these fish. He said, you know what? He always calls me like even, and he calls, you know, Derek and even. That's how I refer to us. And he mixes us up all the time. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he starts telling us about this day. And then he sort of takes a breath, like it's going to be this big moment. He said, you know, I had all these, uh, I had some mackerel. I had, uh, he had uh, the gray mackerel. He had a normal mackerel. He had, you know, some nice reef fish and there was a, uh, he had a lot of family over and he, he, he needed the fish for, uh, he had family staying with him. And so, cause he's a very conservative guy, but he, he needed a few fish and he said, you know, and, and he told us, he said, you know, I was just having so much fun. I was, I was by myself. I was diving in very, very shallow water. I think it was the spots like no more than four meters. And he said, you know, but I, uh, I wasn't feeling so good in my stomach. And I, we said, oh, okay. And he said, but I couldn't stop. And I said, oh, okay. So what, what happened to him? He said, oh, well, 
Of course, I, I, I shit in my pants. <laughs> and, I, and he said, you know, and we, and we are immediately like starting to lose control of ourselves, like on the back of the boat here. And we're both like trying not to rough it in laughter, but we need to keep, keep the story going because we got to hear more. Do you just keep swimming around? And he, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. What For how long? Oh, oh at least a few hours. <laughs> so now we're thinking about it. And it, it's a busy beach, right? So, so I said, what did you do when you get out? And he said, oh, well, you know, it was summer. It was really hot. And I said, okay. And he said, and you know, I always wear, he always wears the Speedo under his wetsuit, the dick stickers. And he said, yeah, so I didn't know what to do. I got out with all the fish and I, I had a long walk to the car. And that's when I realized how uncomfortable I was with what I did to myself in my wetsuit. And he said, oh, yeah, so what'd you do? He said, oh, well, um, you know, I needed to clean myself. So I, I, I put the fish, I kept them in the water in a rock pool. And he, he went onto the rocks on this busy beach and he, he peeled off his wetsuit and his speedos into the nude and the way and he described cleaning all this mess out of his out of his speedo and flicking it onto the rocks just so he could kind of move most of the debris and flushing everything back out of the water and redressing himself and picking up this fish as the entire beach of onlooker watch in absolute horror but you know to tony that was the best day ever and <laughs> and to this day i mean i couldn't die for two hours because i was having problems i started like coughing and hiccuping, <laughs> crying, laughing i mean the whole thing is just but yeah that was probably the biggest laugh i've ever had diving was hanging out with tony i've met him a few times so i'm privy to some of i can imagine some of his mannerisms and him describing it in his incredibly tony like way oh yeah and the whole giving us the whole demonstration how he flicked it off his <laughs> like the whole thing was just another level of tony uh, yeah, he's, a, he's an eccentric man. Uh, I'll have to get him on the show at some stage in the future too. Um, we've run out of time, Evan. I'm going to have to get you back for a round two at some stage of the future, man. Um, but it's been it's it's been awesome chatting with you. Let's do a couple of really fast questions and then um, we'll exit stage right, eh? All right, sounds good. So some Spiro Q&A. Um, single best piece of advice you've ever been given for spearfishing? Relax. Mm, that sounds like a Simon Trip classic, that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, what would be your fish of a lifetime? Right. It's a, it's a moving target, of course. A big, a big yellowfin tuna is on, on my mind. I'm working towards a specific trip for that somewhere. Last question for the day. Uh, big philosophical one. Could you describe what the spearfishing experience means to you in one sentence? Uh, yeah. Um, spearfishing is my preferred outlet to normal life. Oh, nice. You use it as a little bit of a getting back to normal kind of activity? No, it just, it keeps me balanced. Yeah. You know, normal life, you got, you got, you got work, you got the cars, we do all this, uh, you know, things we're not supposed to, but that's, uh, spearfishing's my, in my opinion, normal life is, you know, more the animal side and that's the closest, closest I can get. Awesome. Um, I've had a ball chatting with you, Evan. Um, is there any place people can connect with you? You're not on social media. Um, is there a place guys can reach out to you? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, I, you know, I love to have a chat. Um, you know, I, I still have a fax machine. Uh, I, do, <laughs> I do email and I do phone calls. Um, and yeah, and te- text is always good. Um, email is the best, probably the best way to get a hold of me. Um, 
Yeah, and I can yeah give you that information after the the show, or or find someone at the the club that I'm part of still, the San Susie Dolphins. They can always find me. San Susie Dolphins, Sydney. Yeah. I'll link that up in the show notes. So if people go to noobspirit.com forward slash Evan, I'll have the San Susi details up in there. And uh, big thanks to Simon for putting me on to you today. Uh, Evan, you, uh, you've definitely got a, your own thoughts and way about doing things with Spirit, and it was really interesting to dig into a bit of your story, and uh, hopefully I can get you back in, uh, in the future. Yeah, well, thank you. Cool. Um, parting, parting advice, guidance for the community? Anything else you wanted to say? Before we head off, um, just trying to think here. Um, and ask the people. So the social side of spearfishing is huge. If you, man, it's not a popularity contest, but man, be polite, be be considerate. Think about when you're on someone's boat. Uh, what would you want if it was your boat? And yeah, put yourself second, especially if you're starting out and you're not paying the bills and you're not servicing trailer and you you don't have the knowledge just start with uh start with respect and being courteous and and the if you want to shoot good fish you need to go on the best trips and like i'll be honest it doesn't matter how good a diver you are if you're uh if you're if you're impolite and and a, and a pain in the ass like i'm not uh, you're not gonna get invited so um you can't shoot fish in your bedroom so yeah don't, <laughs> don't be, a, be a good person okay Cool, man. All right. Evan Leeson, everyone. Magic. Good chat, man. Yeah, same. Thanks, Isaac. Hey, Shrek here. Sorry I missed you. Leave me a message. Oh, hey, Shrek, man. How, how are things going over there at the uh, the world's best spearfishing podcast? Things over here at the world's best spearfishing magazine are fantastic. And, uh, man, you've had some some awesome episodes lately i've really been enjoying the podcast so keep that up man i just want to let uh the noobers know that um spirit magazine have got a range of apparel and uh we've got some really cool gear uh you know about it dude but like we've got snapback hats and shirts and stuff and the brand is off the off in the face like by Spirit Magazine, there are some uh, some cool gear you can get, uh, like like magazines and some gear as well. Just check it out at uh, SpiritMagazine.com. But keep what you're doing, doing what you're doing, man. Um, really loving it, and uh, let's keep moving on this year, man. Awesome stuff, the new Spiro, Spirit Magazine. Jeremy Gamble, I'm out. Catch you, bro. Hey guys, I uh, hope you enjoyed that interview with Evan. Absolutely uh, crazy. Um, some of the stories he shared today, particularly, you know, the shark, the shark story, really gets you thinking. Particularly if you are traveling to some of those remote, uh, tropical locations. Uh, top man, thanks for sharing your story, Evan. And uh, you can't really join them on social because he flies under the radar a little bit. But I really hope you enjoyed today's interview. If you did, leave a review wherever you listen to the show. It always helps people find it. And uh, really appreciate the guys just sharing the show with their friends and stuff because um, it's quite hard to for people to find the show sometimes they don't know about it if they don't regularly listen to podcasts so um do do us a favor just go on their phone download a podcast app and uh and subscribe to the show Um, because it's funny when people start listening they sometimes people get obsessed so um yeah just thanks for sharing the love guys all right let's i'll catch you in a fortnight we'll be back with another amazing spiro from a different corner of the world i'm sure see you then This episode of the Noob Spirit Podcast is brought to you by Audible. 
Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at noobspira.com forward slash audible. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or MP3 player. Who uses those? Anyway, noobspira.com forward slash audible. Penetrator Fence, Australian-made, guaranteed, tough as nails with a baby's bum finish. They've got a smoother flex curve than any other fin on the market. This is due to a proprietary capillary closed moulding manufacturing system and basically this process eliminates the need for secondary processing materials and it produces an outstanding finish on both sides of the blade. And this process also eliminates waste, means less environmental impact. It's just one of the benefits to using Penetrator Fins. Had a great deal today. Head over to Penetrator Fins and if you want to buy a set, pump in the code NOOSPARROW save $25. Check them out, noobspero.com forward slash penetrator.